things that are little, things that are small. Big is better. Even when you go into a fast food place, do you want fries with that? You want to make it a combo. You want to make it a large combo. And, of course, all of us, we want the, the big widescreen TV. I mean, you know, after all, bigger is better. And we uh, like the fact that we've graduated from one of the big-name colleges or we send our children off to the big-name college because we want the prestige. That's our motto, big is better. Today we're going to take a look at some verses written by a man named Agur who lived many years ago. I like him because he was a wise man. Not a wise guy, but a wise man. It's easy to find lots of the former, but rare to find truly wise men. He was so wise that God included his musings in the passages of Scripture. Let's look at his perspective on big things versus little things. The Proverbs 30, 24 through 28. Four things on earth are small, yet they are extremely wise. Ants are creatures of little strength, yet they store up their food in the summer. Conies are rock badgers, as some scriptures say, are creatures of little power. Yet they make their homes in the crags. Locusts have no king. Yet they advance together in ranks. A lizard can be caught with the hand. Yet it is found in king's palaces. Normally when we hold up a model... We model upwards. Heroes of faith. People influence the course of history. But a guru models down. Choosing four creatures that are not, not only small, but are particularly unappealing. At least two of them Ants and locusts, we try to eradicate. But Agur chooses them as examples of wisdom. Agur <clears throat> doesn't credit them with being kind or smart. He calls them extremely wise, indicating they are masters at what they do. Since none of them are trained by humans, we can, inf- we can infer that it was the all-wise God who built into them 
and taught them their survival skills. What is there about each of them singly or singularly and all of them together that would make him say such a thing? Their wisdom does not lie in acting like they are anything other than they are. It is utterly foolish for small creatures, including people, to pretend that they are bigger than they are. Like children who stand on their tiptoes in a picture, or when their picture is being taken, the family photo, to appear taller than they really are. Their wisdom lies not in denying their limitations, but in their masterful ingenuity and cunning survival skills in spite of their limitations. Their wisdom enables them to survive, to succeed, and to be secure in the face of their threats and their uh, endangered their very existence, and the threats that endanger their very existence. Let's look at each of them singly before coming back and making some general observations and applications. First, Proverbs thirty twenty five. Ants are creatures of little strength, yet they store up their food in the summer. Ants suffer from their severe limitations of being very tiny. And you can crush a bunch of them with one well-placed foot. They can't defend themselves or overcome their enemies by sheer strength. To compensate for their diminutive size, they use foresight and organization to store up food. You may remember that Solomon pointed to the ant as a model of industriousness. Proverbs 6, 6 through 8. Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler. Yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. There are over 100 species of ants in the world. But probably the ant referred to here in the scripture was the harvester ant, which is found everywhere in Israel and the Middle East. Since it stores up grain, and it's a perfect example of self-discipline, forethought, and prudent industry. Interestingly, it gathers up and stores despite the fact that it has no commander, no overseer, or ruler. There are no bosses to organize the work, to keep the ants on task, to decide their duties, settle their disputes about the timing and distribution and other labor. The ant is self-directed. It doesn't need someone else to tell it what it should do. 
but it uses instinctive God-given wisdom to work. The ant knows what time it is. Some people live in the past. They drive through life with their eyes in the rearview mirror. And there are others who live in the present, living for today like there was no tomorrow. And others live in the future. Their, their theme song is borrowed from Annie. Somewhere over the rainbow. I know I can't sing. The ant knows what time it is. He works in the present to prepare for what lies ahead. Winter is coming. For some of us, that winter may be very personal. I have no idea what it may be for you. Finding yourself suddenly without work or out of money to pay your bills or a devastating illness that you always thought was just some something that other people caught and would never happen to you. Or the loss of your mate from some 60 years. Maybe it's your children. Who you raised with hope and joy and expectation. But they turned their backs on you and everything you considered of value. One thing for certain, winter is coming for each of us. If you have the wisdom of the ant, you'll take advantage of the time. Even though the ant has little strength, it uses what strength it has prepared to prepare for the future. Ants attend picnics, but they don't host them, and they don't go to them to relax. While you're enjoying a tall glass of lemonade, munching on a cheeseburger cooked off, you know, they come off the grill, the ants are carrying off the sugar one grain at a time. And if you don't watch them, they'll carry off the potato chips. They're always on task, working. Straining, carrying the load. Instinctively, they know they must use the summer to prepare for the winter that lies ahead. If you're not prepared... You'll find winter bleak and cold and spiritually dangerous. We need to prepare for times of testing and prepare for what lies ahead. Not just in this season of life, but for what lies ahead in eternity. 
we need to study the Word of God. So that when trials come, you have built up your strength and immunity. We like to think that studying the Bible or coming to synagogue is like getting a shot of spiritual adrenaline. It gives you a spiritual high. Studying God's Word is more like vitamins. You gulp them down in the morning, but no wave of energy flows through your body. You take the vitamins because they built you because they build you up. They protect you against disease in the environment, making you strong in the long run. How foolish, how thoughtless to fritter away our lives in flivorous pursuit. As if there were no lasting work for God that they could be involved in making own provisions for eternity Proverbs 30:26 Conies are creatures of little power yet they make their home in the crags The coney or the rock badger is a gray and brown creature that lives among the rocks from the Dead Sea to Mount Hermon. It's a bit larger than a prairie dog. It's about the size of a jackrabbit. It has a short tail, small ears, but it's admirably suited for its habitat. It has four toes on its front limbs and three toes on its hind legs. And they're connected with almost like a web. It's good for digging. It has broad nails. Under its feet, it has pads like sucking discs, which enable it to keep its footing on slippery rocks. The coney compensates for their vulnerability by making their dwellings among the rocks, making them inaccessible to predators. The wisdom of the rock badger is found in their ingenuity and knowledge for where they can find security and live, live safely. They are the color of the rocks. If they are on the rock sunning themselves, they are almost invisible to see, impossible to see. When a vulture or a hawk or eagle starts to sweep down to attack the uh, coney, he runs into a hole in the rocks and is safe. It's when they decide to venture off into the prairie away from the rocks, that they are vulnerable. It doesn't matter how courageous the little rock badger is, whether or not he's been working out at the local gym, 
the most courageous coney falls victim to the smaller jackal or wildcat. It's known that if it wanders away from the safety of the rocks, it is dead meat. In studying Proverbs, I've encountered many dangers that would destroy us physically, emotionally, relationally, and spiritually, such as greedy men and wanton women. If you have the wisdom of the rock badger, you'll know where your security is. The wise man or woman finds security and safety by following the inspired words of God and by making their home with God Himself. Our rock of safety is Yeshua. Don't wander away from Him and allow the enemy to find you exposed. Proverbs thirty twenty seven. Locusts have no king, yet they advance together in ranks. The first two creatures make up for their weakness by prudent provision and, and prudent places of protection. The wisdom of the locusts consists in their cooperation. Seemingly, locusts can easily be disposed of and don't pose much of a threat. If a grasshopper or a locust jumps out, it may startle you, but it doesn't pose much of a threat. But when masked, a swarm of locusts or grasshoppers become a force with devastating power. When you hear the word locust, the next word that comes to mind is swarm or plague. The plague that God sent against Egypt when Pharaoh refused to let the Israelites go was locusts. Exodus 10, 14, and 15. The locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt. Such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been before, nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land, so that the land was darkened. And they ate all the plants in the land, and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Even today, they invade about one-fifth of the world's land surface each year, affecting one-tenth of the world's population. A friend of mine, uh, as a teenager in Pakistan, said he saw the sky turn black. And everything green was stripped. In 2009, Medicine Lodge, Kansas, their little cousins, the grasshoppers, stripped all the fruit trees and gardens and even killed some of the cedars in the country outside of the town. Back at the turn of the century, of the previous century, a plague of locusts infected the plains of the U.S. 
In a matter of a few days, that swarm of locusts swept over the states of Nebraska, Iowa, and Kansas, doing over $500 million of damage in the currency of that time. Some insects, like the bee, have a monarch. The locusts have no king. Even though they have no ruler, no king, God has placed within them the inherent instinct to know it has to be in a community with other locusts. They instinctively organize themselves into ranks, maintaining perfect marching orders as they fly off in unbroken ranks. Believers have the advantage of having one king. No matter where we live, our culture, our nationality, the body of Mashiach, Mashiach has one head. The Bible is clear that you must have a personal faith in Yeshua. But it is also clear that you aren't to have an individual faith. Many who possess Messiah want to go it alone. They don't want to be accountable to others or involved in something that entails discipline and taking orders. If you live life by yourself, you will fall into the pearls that uh, won't. Excuse me. If you live life by yourself, you will fall into pearls that you won't uh, fall into if you surround yourself with other people with common commitment and common cause. Not only does an individualist place himself in greater personal danger. He weakens the effectiveness of the army of God. The the community, or the Mishpachah, isn't strong when it goes into battle as a bunch of irregular soldiers. But when it goes out united well-disciplined groups, every officer at his post, every soldier in his ranks, each under rule, helpful to each other and to the cause of the king. When we join together, even while maintaining our own distinctive, we can put the enemy to flight. Our unity doesn't lie in our agreement on all the fine points of the doctrine, but in the fact that we are all joined together because of our common life and Messiah. As an old chorus, an old hymnal says, 
We are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. Without community, we won't make an impression upon this culture. Sometimes we hear people talking about my ministry. Excuse me? Our ministry, yes. But my ministry, no. God calls you to no ministry that you do by yourself. We are a community. You can't go it alone. Proverbs thirty twenty eight. A lizard can be caught in, uh, with the hand, yet it is found in king's palaces. This is the only time in the Hebrew scripture or Hebrew uh, in the scriptures that the Hebrew word translated lizard appears. Some of you may have spider or something else. But it is pretty obvious from the context that it refers to the common four-legged wall lizard. I have fond memories of uh, our little house lizards when I was in the Philippines. Little guys everywhere in the house. And you say, what a pest. No, you wanted them. You wanted them in your house. Otherwise, you'd be one red whelp because uh, mosquitoes were terrible. So these little lizards, they'd hide behind uh, pictures on the wall, uh, in your cabinets, uh, just everywhere. They run uh, over the walls and ceiling by means of sucking discs on their toes, catching mosquitoes and other insects. The point of this proverb is its incongruity. You can catch a lizard in your hand, even though you probably wouldn't want to. It's kind of small, kind of ugly kind of slimy but there it is in the king's palace in the presence of the king the lizard hangs out and makes its home wherever it wants even in the palace the wisdom of the lizard is its elusiveness and boldness Most of us are plagued with feelings of insignificance. We're nobodies. Not much account. No one notices. No one cares. We really can't make a difference. These verses speak to us. We may be little in the eyes of the world. But that doesn't mean we are useless. C.J. Lewis made a statement. There are no ordinary believers. These people with whom you worship, with whom you laugh, 
with whom you pray, bear the weight of glory. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 and 27. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. There are no ordinary believers. When you rub shoulders with these people and live with them in the community, you dare not despise them. Because one day, when God is through with them, He will make them exactly like Yeshua, the Messiah. Think of the most ordinary person you know. The kind of person you tend to bypass, to ignore, maybe even make fun of behind their back. If that person knows God, <clears throat> excuse me, if that person who knows God were to walk to the front of appearing as he will one day, bearing all the glory of Yeshua, the Messiah, your first inclination would be to kneel down and worship him or her. It's as incongruous as a lizard in a king's palace. But that person sitting next to you or in front of you will one day be in the presence of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, enjoying fellowship with Him. People small and frail and not particularly attractive will one day be in God's presence. Heirs of God, joint heirs with Yeshua, crowned with glory. In conclusion, ants, rock badgers, locusts, and lizards are all little, insignificant creatures. But if we pay attention, we can learn something from each of them. Don't despise the little things, but admire God's ability to furnish these little creatures with sufficient means to provide for themselves, to defend themselves, and to live safely. Even though they are small, that doesn't keep them from fulfilling their calling. They have enough sense to know their weakness and sense enough to know their strengths. Each of them is unceasingly working towards the end for which it was designed. From the ant, we learn the value of knowing the times, that winter's coming, and the wisdom of preparing for what lies ahead. The Coney teaches us the need to know where our security is.
Not in ourself, but in the rock. Yeshua. From the locusts, we discover the power of the community. From the lizard, we learn God's incongruity. That the ordinary men and women around us are destined to live in the presence of the King of Kings. One more familiar story about little things from the New Testament. Luke 21, 1-4. through 4. At the temple treasure there are 13 brass receptacles for collecting taxes and offerings. Sometimes referred to as shofar chests. They're shaped like inverted trumpets. According to the Mishnah, inscription on each telling what the offerings were for. The new shekel dues, the old shekel dues, bird offerings, young birds for the whole offering, wood, frankincense, gold for the mercy seat, six labeled free will offerings. No paper currency. Money would make a racket. Rich are putting in large offerings. Compared to their gift, the widow's two copper coins seemed insignificant. But they are all she had. Who was she? Not just a widow, but a poor widow. In that society, the needs of the widow were often overlooked. They were outcast. If their late husband's family did not look after them, then no one would. No right of inheritance, couldn't own property, no means of support, no welfare, no social security, no Medicare, no hope. So what could they do? They turn to begging or prostitution were often the only options for survival. We don't know any details, not even her age. We often associate the widow with being old. But let's not forget that Ruth was a young widow. The offerings intended to be used for the poor were in fact being used to fund the expensive lifestyle of the religious leaders. It's ironic. Here she is helping the very institution that was at least partially to blame for her being destitute. She has given money to those who were ripping her off. Some question whether she should have been giving the, the last of her money. It will make her totally dependent, a burden. Two coins, or a lepta as they were called, of little monetary value, only worth 
one four hundredth of a shekel, or about one eighth of a penny, or one one hundredth of the average daily wage at that time. So two coins. She could have kept one and still have given 50%. Her offering doesn't represent the least we can give, but the most. She gave all. Another old hymn when singing. Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. We're saying here, God, everything I have, everything I am, belongs to you. You may criticize her for being so naive, but then we hear the voice of Yeshua commending her. God doesn't romanticize the small gift or criticize the Lord's, the large gift. What he does do is weigh all gifts by the same standard. How much is left over after the offering is made? We as Americans greatly dislike sacrifice. You ask most Americans to sacrifice is like asking a cat to take a bath. We're devoted to pleasure, comfort, the absence of pain. Our culture is all about me, me, me. My car, my house, my boat, my RV, my summer home, my vacations, my jet skis, my money, my fun. More toys, faster toys, bigger toys. All these things are great. Enjoy them if you have them. But where are they on your list? The kingdom of God is not, all, uh, not about all of these things. It is about reaching out to the hurting, the lost, and dying of our world. God doesn't call us to sacrifice for the sake of sacrifice, but as a response to obedience. To sacrifice just for the sake of sacrifice is called stupidity. First Samuel 15.22 To obey is better than sacrifice. Some of you here have sacrificed out of, uh, for years out of obedience to God's calling, seemingly unnoticed. Yeshua sees your sacrifice. He's never too busy to notice your sacrifice. It's never too little, even when you do it in secret.
Our Heavenly Father, we praise you, Lord. We worship your holy name, O Lord. We bow at your footstool. We want to give our all to you, O Lord. Just as your word says, Father. Father, we want to take these words to heart. We want to dwell on them, chew on them. And Father, we want to be like these four small animals. We want to be like them, Lord. We want to count in your kingdom. So, Father, help us here on earth. Give us strength. Give us wisdom. Give us courage. Help us to make a difference in our community, O oh Lord. In our city. In our state. In our country. Let us not be too afraid or too shamed, O oh Lord. That we hide our religion. That we do not share it with those we come in contact with, Lord. Help us to be out there, O oh Lord. Help us to to talk to them, to witness to them, O oh Lord, to confess you as our Messiah. Let us make a difference. We thank you and praise you in Yeshua's name. Amen.